0: Good morning again, if you'd open your Bibles once again to Romans chapter 12, read verses 1 and 2. Romans 12:1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God... To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Father in heaven, we pray now that as we come to your word, that we will be in awe of it, and that we will take seriously... Uh, what you tell us here in your word we pray that uh, as brother henry already prayed that we will be delivered from distractions of the present and that we will give our attention to you lord we know that we need your holy spirit uh, to accomplish this so we ask for the presence of the holy spirit in our minds and hearts right now so that we might benefit uh, from your word which is good for us we pray this in jesus name Amen. amen There's a saying. We don't really know where it came from. We think we do. It's attributed to Ambrose, the church father. uh, When in Rome, do as the Romans do. And that supposedly comes from Augustine was going to go from Milan, Italy, to Rome. And in Milan, they didn't have a fasting day. That was the same day as they had in Rome. So he went to Ambrose, the bishop of Milan, and he asked him, what do I do? What should we do? He was going up there with his mother. And the answer that Ambrose gave is fairly long, but it's been boiled down to this. When in Rome, do as the Romans do. In other words, the proverb means that uh, try to fit in with the customs uh, with the place where you're, where you're visiting, where you're living. Try to fit in as much as you can. I noticed this morning I was pedaling on my stationary bike and I was looking at uh, your website and I was just trying to rem- remember a few of the names, making sure I had them right. And uh, I noticed on the very first page you have the same passage that I was going to cite here where it talks about being all things. To, Paul says I, you know, that we should be all things to all men so that by any means we might win some. So there you've got that. You've got Ambrose is saying, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. And then you've got Paul telling us in 1 Corinthians 9 that we should try to fit in wherever we can for the sake of the gospel. And then you have this Romans 12, too, which says, don't be conformed to the world. So what's going on? Paul says one thing in one place and one thing in another place. Uh, And not only that, I've noticed On the screen this morning, and I I noticed online you've got it, and also in the bulletin, uh, you've got this thing here about loving the world. Of course, you mean what God means in his word when he talks about where to love the world in the sense of wanting to bring them salvation through the gospel. So there's really no contradiction between these things of when in Rome do as the Romans do, and what Paul's talking about here in Romans 12 about not being molded by the world. So our next point is this. We're talking about the worships, worshipful service of God. And remember, this is all rooted in the gospel. This, this is this big watershed point in the book of Romans where he says, I appeal to you, therefore. And he's saying this is now how you ought to live as a person who has experienced the mercies of God in Christ. So I just want to make sure we understand that we're not falling into some kind of moralism here. We're talking about the life that we should live as born-again people. Okay, and so he's going to give us a negative and a positive here in, in verse 2 uh, about this worshipful service of God. Negatively, it involves an ongoing resistance to being shaped and molded by this fallen world. So he states it negatively. Do not be conformed to this world. You're not to let yourself be fitted to this world present age this evil age as Paul calls it another place so you and I to resist conformity to the world that means that we're constantly in the position in this world where we're fending off the ways of this apostate world this world which is the prodigal son world we've left the father's house we've gone off into the far country as a human race it's easy to think and act worldly even if you're born again We constantly are walking in this world and living in this world, and it's like picking up an accent. You know, if you spend any time in the Deep South and you're around the people down there that are natives, you might find yourself picking up their Southern accent. I knew a lady uh, in a place where I grew up who went and visited her son in the South. Uh, He was in the Air Force, stationed down there, and she went away for a week or two to visit him. She, grew, she was from the town I'm living in now. She grew up there and everything like that. And when she came back two weeks later, she had a southern accent. She never lost it. <laughs> it's like, wow, very influential. Well, we can be like that. And we, we must not accommodate ourselves to the world's anti-Christ ways. Uh, a British pastor says this. God's mercies have made you God's people. So do not live as if you were not. In other words, do not live like everyone else. Do not let people around you pressurize you into being like them. And I'm sure you feel that you feel that way. If you're in school, you feel that way. If you're in the workplace, we all do. We feel the pressure, our neighbors. If you stop and talk to them along the roadway in your neighborhood, and they begin to talk to you. You feel and they're saying ungodly things. There's a temptation to just kind of I don't mean we have to constantly be rebuking them. I don't mean that. But there's a const, There's a pressure to be like them so that we don't offend them. Uh, are you caving in to the world's squeeze? Now, uh, <clears throat> there's an old British uh, commentator. And I only discovered him recently. I, I can't believe I didn't know that he, was, that he existed, but his name's William Burkett. And he decided, he lived mostly in the 1600s, he decided that he wanted to write a, a New Testament commentary, which he did. And it's, you can buy it still in hardback, but it's online for free, too. You just type in his name, William. And it's, it's very handy. He was an Anglican, an evangelical Anglican. And he's got these short, pithy sayings in his commentary. And I I checked him out because I just found out about him recently. By the way, he was the the, uh, instigation for Matthew Henry wanting to write a commentary on the Old Testament, which he did. And he got all the way through Acts before he died. And then his friends finished Matthew Henry's commentary. But anyway, William Burkett says this about this, don't be conformed to the world. And I want you to notice where he puts his emphasis He says, do not fashion or accommodate yourselves to the corrupt principles or customs to the sinful courses and practices of the men of the world. In other words, he's saying, don't be a disciple of the present age. Don't let yourself be squeezed and molded into the way the world is. Now, uh, he uses here literally this word world is really the word age, commonly translated age. And Jesus tells us that there's two ages. There's the present age and there's the age to come. The age to come is that age of, he also calls it the regeneration in Matthew 19:28, where he's talking about the world to come will be a world that has no sin. The world, the planet itself will be renewed. It's the time of regeneration. But in the parallel passage, he calls it the age to come. So the age to come is the age of regeneration. It's the age of the new creation. Now, As you go through the Bible, as you trace this through, you find that this age, I already alluded to this, this age is also called the present evil age. In other words, it's filled with evil now. It's a fallen world. Um, And he's saying, don't be conformed to the prevailing winds of this world. Uh, It's characterized by rebellion against the Lord and his Christ. Evil passions, lies, false gods, uh, false doctrine." And the works of the flesh. And we have all those categories. We have those uh, lists of works of the flesh in the Bible. For example, in Galatians 5, 19 through 21, you've got all these different kinds of works of the flesh. Jesus talks in Matthew, in Mark 7, about the uh, the evil things that come out of our hearts. We're not to be conformed to those things. Uh, we're told that this age is under Satan's dominion. Ephesians 2, 2 tells us that people of the world walk according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is energizing uh, the sons of disobedience. And that's why we say, you know, even in our state legislature right now, they're trying to pass some incredibly evil things. And we say, how can that be? How can how can you want to pass a law to, to kill babies even when they're at their full term? How can you do that? It's evil from the very beginning, but it's evil. How much more evil does it seem to be? Obviously, we say, how can that be? It's a world under Satan's dominion. People not only have the capacity as fallen people to do these kinds of things, but the devil is instigating uh, these things. Again, this is an evil age. And Jesus, to give you the whole verse, says Jesus gave himself for our sins so that he might deliver us from this present evil age. You have the same thing, Paul says this in Titus. He says, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, gave himself for us so that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. And I don't know why they did this, did this, but the word zealous for good works, it's actually zealots would be zealots for good works, eager to do them. Well, Satan, the God of this age, he blinds men to the reality of the gospel. He blinds men to the reality of their situation. He's got this diabolical ability. We don't know how he does it to enter into people's minds and make them oblivious to the need for salvation. So that when you say it, it's kind of like that teacher in Charlie Brown. Wah, 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 wah. Remember that? That's all they hear. It's like, yeah, 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 yeah. Like, that's all they hear. And the Apostle John tells us that the whole world reclines in the wicked one. It, It lies in the wicked one. It's seated in the wicked one, if you want to put it like that. One writer put it like this. He says, this... Word reclines or seated. It pictures the world as characteristically non-resistant to and passively dependent on the power that grips the lost masses of humanity. In other words, the world just easily does what it does. It just drinks in iniquity. It's easy. It's the Broadway. The world is nestled in the bosom of Satan. And we find that very hard to believe. I wouldn't believe it unless the Bible didn't teach it, unless the Bible taught it, Uh, namely that. Even what we we call good people, nice people who don't believe in Jesus, we're told in the Bible that they're under the power of Satan and that they're resting in the bosom of Satan. They don't realize that. If you told them that, they'd be very insulted. But he has the the persuasion in their lives. Uh, Jesus describes Satan as the strong man who's fully armed. And unless he's bothered by a stronger one, Jesus is referring to himself, he says his goods are in peace. That is, they're undisturbed. That's why when you and I, when we witness to someone who's in this condition of being in peace, so to speak, they become angry and they become riled up because you're disturbing them. Uh, They don't think about reality. They don't think about, you know, if men only were were aware of, if, if their eyes could be open to the hellish reality that they're facing for eternity. Someone prayed that this morning about present life is short, And eternity is long. Yeah, it never ends. If people knew right now, if they really understood that unless they have Jesus Christ as their Savior, they are going to spend forever and ever and ever and ever and ever in the lake of fire. And there is no hope there. Even when we're in our worst minutes in this life, we have hope. You know, I've given a little illustration like this before. When you go out on a cold winter morning, you have to go out just for a second to your garage or something like that to do something. It's cold and it's uncomfortable. But in the back of your mind, you're thinking, in a few minutes, I'm going back inside and I'll be warm. You have hope. But in hell, there's no hope. None. None at all. It's just going to go on forever and ever. And Satan blinds people to that so that they don't think about it. He's called the God of this age. He's a God. He's called the God because he's the usurper. He doesn't really inherently deserve to be the God of this age. Jesus said this to those who were opposing him, namely the Jewish leaders. He said, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He said that in John eight forty four. 44. And here we go again. John says, the apostle John says, do not love the world. Again, now that's not a contradiction of what you're saying in your bulletin there. You're saying it in the right sense. Obviously, Southwest Harbor Congregational Church isn't defying the word of God by that statement in the bulletin. In fact, you you put in there in uh, the bulletin, meaning loving the lost enough to share the gospel in order to make disciples of all people. In other words, what you're you're talking about is what Jesus did. Jesus would sit with the the worst people of society, the prostitutes, the thieves, uh, all the all the no goods. Because he, he loved them. It's because he wanted to win them. It wasn't because he liked, a, he, liked a, he liked an off-color joke once in a while. No, it's nothing like that at all. He loved the world in that sense. He wanted to bring them to a saving knowledge of Christ. The world. One writer put it, it is that entity oriented against God. When John says, do not love the world, you could paraphrase it like this. Do not love the apostate system that's alienated from the living and true God. Do not love the godless mores, thought patterns, the practical atheism of this world, a world that considers God and his holy ways as irrelevant to human life. You know, just to give you an example of that, it's a simple one. You, you see it all the time, but when I was on pedaling on the bike this morning, I watched the, the weather report which was from last night at 11 o'clock, and the meteorologist, uh, is, is he, he was talking about today's going to be a good day. We're actually going to see the sun for most of the day. And he said, "So if you go, when, you, he said, when you go to the golf course this morning, he said the tee times are going to be stacked up deep, and they went on to talk about this is what we do with, we're going to do with our day. Now, I'm not saying that so, so I sound like, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other men. But there's a sense you can say that as a Christian, you can say, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other men because of what you've done for me, not because I'm so innately good. But that's how he was carrying it on on. And then the anchor said, uh, well, he says, I think two weeks ago when we had those 80 degree days we, we did up in the land. Anyway, he said, uh, I think Mother Nature was just teasing us. See, there's no thought of God at all. It's just uh, it's completely void of the world's minds it's that system that practically speaking is atheistic well john goes on to say for all that is in the world the desires of the flesh that is that bias towards sin that paul calls the flesh the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions is not of the father but is from the world that's an interesting expression there pride in possessions it's translated in the Old King James and in the New King James, the pride of life. Um, the old ASV says the vainglory of life. I like what the NLT did. It paraphrased it like this, and it's really, I think it's nailing it. Pride in our achievements and possessions. That's worldliness. See, that's what we're not to be conformed to. I think that's a big one in the church today. I think it's a big problem in the church. This pride of life. Um. I mean, the world, it boasts, it brags, it crows about its possessions and accomplishments. How, how often have you heard this? Uh, you know, someone will say this about their child, or they'll say, I'm so proud of. Now, I think sometimes people aren't thinking through what they're saying. They don't, I think Christians might even use it, use it in an innocent way, so I don't want to be that picky. I think what they're trying to say is, I am overjoyed with what God has done in this person's life, my son's life, my, my daughter's life, whatever. But I think most times it's not that way. People are saying, I'm really proud, as if God had nothing to do with it. In other words, what do you, what do you have that you didn't receive? 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What do you, and he goes on to say, why do you boast as if you hadn't received it? You know, um, the pride of life, it's a big thing. Someone put it like this, John Stott. The pride of life, it's an arrogance or vainglory relating to one's external circumstances, whether wealth or rank or dress. So, for example, uh, you wouldn't want to tell somebody, especially in high society, you wouldn't want to say that I, I bought my shirt at Target. You'd say I bought it at Target. Right. <laughs> right. That's what you do. Um, the pride of life is that feeling of horror that you get when you get that letter in the mail from the last class president that you had in high school 25 years ago, and they're announcing to you in this letter that our 25th graduation is coming up and we're going to have a big celebration and get together, and it's at that point that you realize that you have about six months to make something of your life. (laughs) That's the pride of life. That's what that is. Especially you think, oh, some of my classmates, they became doctors, they became this, they became that, and I'm not. Pride of life. We, you, our, our identity is in Christ as Christians. Again, someone put it like this. The pride of life, and I'm, I'm taking time on this because I see it as a big problem in the church, and it's displeasing to God. Um, and we're not to be conformed to it. The pride of life. It's an attitude of boastfulness and a hollow self-exaltation based on material possessions or social prominence. It is the disposition to show off before others on the basis of worldly possessions or personal abilities and achievements. So, for example, do you have friends or acquaintances um, that you wouldn't want other people to know that they are your friends because of, you know, their on the lower rung of society. I mean, that's the pride of life. Uh, You know, social media, and I have to be very careful here. I got in trouble on this in my my church uh, in Poland. I was going on about this one Sunday, about how social media has become an avenue for people to brag and boast all the time. You know, I, again, I got to be careful because you don't know why people put things on. I kind of enjoy when I see some of my relatives put things on, so I can see what they're doing and so forth. But you know, I, I don't understand why every thing you do, you have to put a picture on it. and every time you go to a restaurant, you have to put the meal that you're having. I don't understand all that. Some of you probably do that, and I'm, you, hate, you hate me now. But uh, it had to happen sooner or later, so I might as well get it out of the way early. You know, but it's easy. It's easy now to to boast and to brag about. All the great things. Look how great I am. Look how wonderful I am. Uh, and you know what? I've noticed that God has a way of bringing Christians down when they do that. One, one example that I experienced in my own life, a long time ago, I was an eighth grader. It was the fall of 69. And they in our district, they started combining the grammar schools. So they put all the eighth graders from two towns, Hudson and Kanduska, together in, in those two towns. So... We had to leave Hudson. We had to go to the next town over to Kandeskig for eighth grade and so the first couple of days they did all these tests to see because it was quite a large class compared to what it would have been. It was like forty kids in that room, and so they gave us tests to so they could split it up split us up into the well we used to call it as the class the smart kids and the dumb kids okay you know that's not very nice, but that's what it was a class, B class. <laughs> so um So some of us got into the smart part and we got math books that showed that, you know, that this was some kind of an advanced uh, class for algebra. So when we came back to Hudson that night to pick up our bus to go to another place, I was pretty proud of that, stinking little proud guy. And I had a friend in seventh grade and I wanted him to see that. And I was holding my book up like this and a a friend of mine who was got put in, into the dumb class on this stuff. He saw what I was doing. He picked it out, and he says, oh, sure, put your book out there like that. I was humbled because I, that's, a, he, that's exactly what I was doing. It was a pride of life, pride of accomplishment, which back then I couldn't have uh, said to you, oh, I received whatever ability I have from, from God in that thing. Beware of it, folks. It's a, it's a bad problem, and God hates it. Do not be conformed to this world. Don't be molded and shaped By the world. We're called to resist it. You know, we could go on forever and talk about some of the things that mark our society as the as the pride of life or the way of this age, the evil way of this age. Uh, There are some prominent ones right now from different eras of time. You'll find that you'll find that there's a particular sin or sins uh, that are prevalent that these sins have always existed, but. You know, murmuring's a big one today. Americans murmur, you know, terribly with all that we've got and all God has done for us. Fretting and worrying. Jesus says it's the Gentiles. He meant unsaved people. It's the Gentiles that seek after all these things. They're zealously consumed with what are we going to eat? What are we going to wear? Um, non commitments another big one in our society. People don't commit to anything today. It's evident in the whole area of marriage. Incivility. Um, if you don't believe that, just drive your car someplace. There's a lack of neighborliness. In other words, I see this all the time. Someone's walking alongside the road and cars will just zoom by them. It's like, well, if I hit you too bad, you die. That's your problem, not mine. Um, lack of a servant attitude. Impatience. They've got a clock now in baseball. Can you believe that? Major League Baseball is using a clock. When I was a kid, if we went to Fenway Park, the game went by so fast, you couldn't, I mean, a three and a half hour game was like, what happened? You know, the game's over, but now we've got to have a clock because everybody's in a hurry to do the next thing. I mean, I think it's good that they made some of these people stop waiting a minute between pitches, but really, it's just part of the attitude of our, of our smartphone society. Everything instant. I need faster speed, I need, I need this, I need that. It's gonna be faster. Uh, impatience. Well, I got tested this morning. We left a little bit later than I wanted to leave, but we did, and it was not that much really. But as soon as we got on Route 15, there was somebody poking. It's like, i got to be there by 1030, you know, and then uh, got into Ellsworth, and same thing, people poking, and, you know, and I'm thinking, I've got, I've got that in here. I'm not going to hide it either, but I was feeling very impatient because they were going to make me late. I didn't want to be late. Are there areas in your life that you know from the scriptures that it's wrong and shaping your life? Yes, all things to all men. But the Swiss commentator from a couple centuries ago said, yes, all things to all men, but with firmness of principle and at the same time, delicacy of conduct. So it's a it's a fine line to fit in but not fit in so much that we're now denying our relationship to Christ. Okay, let me go quickly to the positive statement that he gives here. He says that this worshipful service of God involves an ongoing change through thought renovation. So Romans 12:2 again, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Thought renovation. This is the biblical alternative. It's amazing that he has to say this. If you're a Christian, you're regenerate. The Spirit of God has come to live in your your being. He's living in your heart. But our minds are cluttered with thought patterns that are evil and wrong. There's a lot of worldly debris left in my mind, and not only when I sweep it out, it comes back. Or if I get on top of one area... I think someone prayed something like this this morning. It's kind of like you slam one cupboard door and another one opens. There's a lot of worldly garbage that has to be removed out of our minds like the old spring cleaning thing they used to do. Do you remember the the old radio program, the Bible Study Hour by James Boyce? It's still online. You can still listen to it online. their, Their theme there is this. It's to help you to think and act biblically. Get your thinking right and so that you'll act right. Mind renewal. Conduct renewal. As fallen beings, our thoughts are warped, they're skewed, they're bent out of shape. I mean, who would ever believe the things that are going on today? If you stand for what's right, the world's going to say you're evil. Isaiah 520. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Not trying to be political right now, but uh, the leader of our nation said a couple days ago that if you're a parent and you you want to stop your child from making a certain kind of transition, you see that happening in them, he said, you are cruel. You're a cruel person if you do that. Evil, good, good, evil. Jay Adams said in a book a long time ago, in more than redemption, he says again and again in the scriptures, we are confronted with the fact that sinful human thought reverses God's thought. So we need to be renewed, and it's not a one time thing. It's an ongoing thing. It's a work in progress. It's not a crisis event. I realize that there are times in our lives where we have you can look back and you can say this was a milestone in my life. This changed my life. This incident that took place in my life. But not every day is like that. Most days are the humdrum of life, if I can put it that way. And so we change gradually. That's why the Apostle Peter uses the word grow. If you plant something in your garden today, it's not going to be a full-blown vegetable the next day. Douglas Moo says... This reprogramming of the mind does not take place overnight, but it is a lifelong process. Second Corinthians 318. We're turned into the image of Christ from glory to glory, or as ESV puts it, from one degree of glory to another. And that's where we need patience with each other, folks. You need first of all, you need patience with yourself, if I can put it that way. Do you keep committing the same thing over and over again? But you repent. That's what we do as Christians. But if you've been at this, see, and I'm a. You're all strangers to me for the most part. Um, some of you have probably been here at this church for a long time, and so you've seen all the warts, you've seen all the wrinkles in the other person, and it's easy to lose patience with people. Patience is needed. This this change, this growth, takes time. Well. <clears throat> skipping over a bunch of stuff it's my fault not the clock the clock didn't change I did Um, what's the outcome of a renewed mind listen to how the NIV puts it then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is his good and pleasing and perfect will in other words as you are transformed in your mind and you begin to change and become different the things that you once hated the things that You wouldn't sort of scoffed at. You say, this is good. I'm enjoying this. I'm enjoying the renewed mind that has led me to a change in my conduct. We begin to see and understand that to taste the Lord is a good thing. John Stott says, here then are the stages of Christian moral transformation. First, our mind is renewed by the word and spirit of God. Then we are able to discern and desire the will of God. You begin to have the mind of Christ. You begin to be able to actually think thoughts of Christ and see things from his his ways. And the Apostle John says we experience this reality. His commandments are not burdensome. They're not crushing. They're not weighty. They're not irksome. John Murray said, And take this as an application. I'm going to put your in there just for the sake of that. He says, if your life is aimless, if it is stagnant, if it is fruitless, lacking in content, it is because you are not entering by experience into the richness of God's will. You see, you can't experience the joy of living for Christ by not living for Christ can't be done it's not a it's not a spectator sport it involves involvement so worshipful service of God one way to look at it is this there's a negative aspect where we are constantly resisting the filth of this evil world at the same time we're constantly by the word and spirit we're renewing our mind and we're resting in that the old hymn writer wrote I am resolved to follow the savior faithful and true each day Heed what he saith, do what he willeth. He is the living way. Let's pray. And so, Lord, may our prayer be, search me and know me, try me, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the everlasting way. Lord, we pray that as redeemed people, you will help us to apply these principles in Romans 12 too. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.